now happens to be Wendy Richter, who has taken the world's female heavyweight championship from the great Moolah, who is sitting in all her splendor. Now, I want to show you a clip of what Wendy and the celebration party later, and then, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to show you the difference between you and I. I'm going to show you exactly why I'm Roddy Piper and you're not. I want you to take a look at Wendy Richter in all her splendor and as happy as she can be. And then I will show you the truth, brother. <laughs> Cindy Lauper, I'll tell you what. You know about hits. And tell me about this lady to your immediate left. Wendy Rector, the new lady champion. Huh? She's a smash. She's the champ. She's exotic looking. She's strong. She has new ideas, new purpose, and new meaning. And she's going to give a jolt to women's wrestling like never before. That's right. And right. I'm so proud of her, Gene. I know you are. <laughs> you think you're so smart, huh? You see, I'm going to show you why I'm Roddy Piper and you're not. Next week on The Pit, man, I'm going to have the whole collage for you. I'm going to have Wendy Rector. I'm going to have what happened. And I'm going to show you she didn't win nothing. And I'm going to point it out and I'm going to get the decision reversed. First, she did nothing. You want to see someone bust someone's bubble, brother? Huh? Just when you think you got all the answers, RP changes the questions. You want to see a little girl break down and cry? Huh? You just come back next week, and old RP here, he'll show you exactly why. <laughs> Don, I think we're going to need a drop or a sound effect in the future for this. Uh-oh. <laughs> I know where this is going. Because we have what we say on the sportscasters, a fluid situation. A fluid situation with the podcast this week. We know that we will be having, after three things, a baseball guest. Do we know a baseball guest? Uh, maybe not. <laughs> and we know after the book club, we will be having a wrestling guest. Do we know which wrestling guest? I think so, but maybe not. Okay. So we have, uh, as we say, a fluid information uh, situation today. I was thinking today before the podcast, because it was kind of a slow news week, relatively speaking. Yeah, very much so, yeah. And uh, I'm like, I wonder if people would freak out if it wouldn't be in my wheelhouse, but I'd be entertained by it. If you just came on and you had like Michael Fabiano and like these big name guys and talk nothing but wrestling. <laughs> like, wouldn't that freak everybody out? Would they be mad? Like, where's the fantasy? Where's whatever? Well, because I said it. We talked for, like, 30 seconds on the Fabiano interview yeah. about, about wrestling because he's a big mark. Yep. And uh, I'm like, we have got to stop because people are going to be Yeah, pissed. I wonder if they would be. Yeah. Or, I, there's a certain section I'm sure would not be. But. I always said it would be so cool, sort of the opposite of that, even though he'd never do it. You know, the, like, the most sought-after podcast guest in wrestling is CM Punk. You know, he did that one with his buddy, I don't know if you heard about it, like no. last year, he did this, uh, they're actually getting sued, him and his buddy. By uh, Vince? By the doctor that they that he blamed for oh. a lot of uh, the injuries that he says they missed. And, um, you know, 
then they were supposed to do a second one where he answered questions, and that kind of didn't happen exactly. So he's kind of the most sought-after guy, and I thought it'd be so funny if we could book him but talk only about the Blackhawks. <laughs> yeah, like I just think that'd be the coolest thing if he came on and only talked about hockey and Chicago sports. And never once did we even act like he was a wrestler. Right. Yeah, that'd be good. So that's kind of the opposite of that. I would love it. It's probably never going to happen. It's definitely not going to happen today, so we might as well start with what we have. Season 5, episode 24, August 4th, 2015. We said the guests are kind of up in the air at this point. Uh, last week we had a great show, I thought. Joe Piznanski and Michael Fabiano. We'll give you the uh, links and information at the end. We're going to do a book club. We're going to do one last thing, and we'll get started now with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right. Well, in the uh, football news, that it seems to always be news around this time of year. Uh-huh. Uh Guess which NFL running back? Oh, I did hear surgery. this. Yeah. Three to six months, they say, too. It's one Arian Foster. What do you do with him now in fantasy? I that's that was my first. I, I feel bad for Arian Foster. By all accounts, he seems like a nice dude. But my first thought was, what would I? Is he even draftable? It's a groin issue. Yeah, allegedly. Yeah, it might need surgery. Three to six months. So if you get and three months, of course months, he's draftable, especially if you can stash. Yeah, I mean, I just as draftable. How deep your benches are. Just as draftable as say Josh, Josh Gordon, Gordon was last right, year. I mean, sure. he's that kind of a game changer. Yep. I mean, everyone's draft now is going to be who's going to pull the trigger and when, right? Because it's yeah. it's like the thing we talk about. Us sometimes we're both guilty of trying to outsmart the league, right? right Someone's right. going to try to outsmart the league by drafting him way earlier than they should. And if he's out six months, they won't use him at all, really. Right. If he's out six months, I think he's undraftable. I mean, unless you're in a league that. But with something like a groin, they're not going to know whether it's three to six months until you get to that point. Right. You're not going to be able to project that out until the surgery happens. And I mean, just in so much as they're giving a range of three to six months, like that is a huge span there. Usually they have it like four to six weeks. You're talking two weeks, not not 12 weeks that it could be different. So Right. It's a difference of having some value. And yeah. having no value. And I mean, imagine if you are... Like, this is why you can't draft early, and we always try to say this, draft as late as you can. Yep. But imagine if you had a last week of July draft. Oof. That's rough. And that where, was your first he? round Third? Pick. Fourth overall? Yeah, top fourth? five probably. Yeah. Six if he slips, if there's a bunch of guys who got burned maybe by him. Speaking of this, I know it's not a busy news week, so people might not mind if we go on a fantasy tangent. Um, after listening to Fabiano last week, I checked out... I, I was looking for podcasts. My my go to podcast has been ESPN Fantasy. Yeah, and they're done. Focus. They're going to reboot. They are going to reboot, but they so far have nothing. They had uh, Nate Rabbit's like farewell shows, right. which was not fantasy really related at all. So I checked out the NFL Network one, and they went over their PPR mock, and that's perfect because all my leagues are PPR, and I think it was a twelve team mock, something like that. Did you hear Drew Brees slip to like the sixth or seventh round in that mock? Yeah. Well, I mean. I think that that's not that unfair in the sense that if you're not a quarterback right away, you should be late like that, right? Yeah. 
I was just surprised. I mean, do you ever want to take a quarterback in the third round? I mean, it's usually like you want to take I him in the don't. first or you want to take him late. I don't, but I think Aaron Rodgers was taken in the first. And is there that much of – I mean, Breeze has a better chance to stay on the field than Rodgers, right? I mean, I mean, people just are in the mood. He's a very trendy, you know – down bust guy. This I mean, year. granted that. I mean, they even admitted on the podcast this is an example of a bunch of experts being really, really cute. You know, like oh yeah. So, I mean, that's probably not where he falls to in in real life. And he has thirty five plus touchdowns and forty nine hundred yards passing last year. Yeah, I mean, that's they talk about Eddie Lacy as the potential number one overall pick because his floor is so low or floor is so high. Like he's probably not going to be the number one guy. He might not even win you many weeks by himself, but he's probably going to be super consistent. If anyone is a lock for 4,500 yards and 30 plus touchdowns, I know people think they're going to run more and they will, but they ran a lot in 2009. Yeah. They were, when they won the Super Bowl. they were exactly split in run pass and Breeze was a great fantasy quarterback in 2009. Since we're not going to do a fantasy segment today, yeah. uh, where, how do you like C.J. Spiller this year? Oh, I love him, especially in a PPR. I think he's going to have 65 catches. Because I think he's a guy that people are really, really split on. But if he's used the way Sproles was used, he'll be a monster. He absolutely, that's absolutely the plan, by the way. Yeah, I, yeah. I would think so. I, I, I don't know what people don't like about him, if it's just the injuries, maybe. He's or... going to get 70 targets, probably. Yeah. You know, yeah, it, I think I like him, especially if he goes late. I don't know if he's a great third running back in Buffalo. I don't know that it helps him or hurts him. Like I don't know if people would be sour on Spiller as because they've seen him here, or if they'll be real quick to pick him up, thinking they're being sneaky. Assuming you don't go running back, running back, running back, he's probably the best third running back you can get. I mean, if you're gonna squeeze running backs onto yeah. your team, yeah, you could probably draft three better ones. But if you're going to draft your third running back around when you would expect to, he's, I think he's the best one in a PPR. Now, is he a guy like Shane Vereen where he has almost no value no. in a non-PPR? No. No, you think he's better? You'd rather have him than Shane Vereen? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably right, too. All right, that's all I had on fantasy. No, that's fine. That That's good. Um, I mean, we talked a little bit. Do we want to get into Brady much? No. I mean, that's going to go to court. We thought so. We figured it would. And, I mean, like I said, if I'm Brady uh, – I mean, I think he's probably guilty, but if I'm Brady, I fight it, try to get the year out of it, and then retire. You know, like it looks like it looks. There's all kinds of foolishness with Aaron Hernandez and his trial. Not interested. No, he's going to jail forever and never coming back. Yeah, he's serving a number of life sentences. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter. Yeah, Uh, it sounds like Justin Blackman is never going to play ever again. That's which is just too bad, right? I mean, like, why not? Yeah, he what had, happened to him? Uh, I mean, I, I didn't. I don't think I speak out of turn when I say I didn't see many Jags games. This like is, most uh, people, but he had a monster like fantasy year the one year with Josh Gordon. I think it was. They this both- is a, a quote from his GM. I have not heard anything, and I guess I harbor a little bit of hope. But realistically, I think when you're away from the game for two and a half years, what you were once is not what you probably will be. Your skills do erode, and especially if you're not staying in tip-top shape and you're not in football shape. Um, he hasn't played or practiced with Jacksonville since week 8 of the 2008-13 season when he was suspended indefinitely for his third violation substance abuse, right? of the substance yeah. abuse policy. That's, um, that's sad. He must apply for a reinstatement and endure a two-month vetting process to determine if he'll be allowed to return. Um, so if he doesn't get that vetted process started soon, 
then that means he won't be there this year, which means, yeah, he'll never be back, right? Can he miss yeah, a whole another I, whole year and come back? I feel bad for this guy because this makes me think about something I never really thought about before. But, uh, I mean, performance-enhancing drugs are one thing. You should be hard on that. But, I mean, how hard should it is it working? You think this tough love on and by the way, abuse? I, I, that's a great question. I think, you know, I think that's something that's going to be talked a lot, a lot in presidential debates. Is the war on drugs in general working? Right, it's a topic every time we right. we get a new president. But I mean, it's easy to compare everything: deflated footballs, uh, smoking pot. Yeah, I don't like to, to do that. Beating yeah, women, I don't right? Because like you have to. Pass. I never like that either. Like, oh, you gave. Uh, and it's a 16-game season, too. It's not like they have 162 games to try to work with. Right. Where one can be... I don't know. I just... It, I don't like to do that. It's an odd thing. I mean, is is Josh Gordon or Justin Blackman, are they better people because they're suspended from the league? Is the league better for not having these guys in there? Well, they smoke, I know Justin Blackman weed. would be a better person if he could get back. He has two and a half years remaining on a four-year, $18.5 million contract. Yeah. I mean, is was the league better off when they? That's like who was nine the other, million dollars waiting for him. Who was that freak athlete the Jags drafted? I think he was he was a white guy quarterback, but he was super fast. They used him as a receiver, and he had cocaine problems. Matt, Matt Jones, something like that. Yeah, is that his name? Yeah. I mean, is is he better off not being in football right now? I, I just it's a it's an odd. I mean, maybe I have too much sympathy for drug users. I, I don't know, but if if it's not helping, I mean, them you have to have them, rules against it, right? You can't just sure. say, okay, we're not going to test for recreational drugs or recreational drugs are legal in the league and then have your athletes being arrested constantly for buying, using, doing. I mean, I don't know. Right, yeah. You have to have some kind of law and order in the league. And it only resembles the law and order in the in the country for the most part, right? Right, it just feels like it's, and maybe like you said, it's a microcosm well, of the country. It's not working. Like a guy who is suspended for cocaine is suspended for using something that's illegal in the country. Sure, right. So I, I don't know what the answer is. I'm not smart enough. I'm sure if we did know the answer, uh, we would yeah. not be here. I mean, it's just sad to see. I mean, from a talent perspective, it's one thing. You're missing these guys that are talented. From a human perspective, Josh Gordon seemed to do everything right last year, leading up to the suspension, got back, played football, and then immediately got suspended again. So, I, And at some point, working. too, it's, it's a bit working. of defiance on their part. Sure. You know, like... I, I I don't know. How quick would they be to change the rules if this happened to like Peyton Manning though? They somebody? wouldn't. No. They didn't change it for Lawrence Taylor. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I get. I, it's just it's not working. I, I don't know what what they're supposed to do. I don't know how much you can hold these guys' hands, but it's it just doesn't feel like it's working. Uh, last week when we did the podcast, we did it essentially on or around the Major League Baseball trade deadline, and one of the bigger moves that went down was David Price ended up in Toronto and I bring it up only because yesterday was his first start in Toronto and it was a Monday but a holiday in Canada a civic right, holiday yeah. which they got that right why we don't have a Monday in August off is <laughs> ridiculous um, and uh, 40,000 plus in the Sky Dome and um, he pitched 8 innings you know double digit strikeouts um, just a, a great gem, and uh, between him and Tulowitzki, the Jays are fifty-two and or fifty-five and fifty-two. Um, they're still five and a half games behind uh, the Yankees, who are fifty-nine and forty-five. Uh, but there's still plenty of time left, and of course, there's 
uh, two wild card spots as well. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how the Jays. Yeah, and I heard they have something like finish this out, like ten games with the Yankees. Still, they do have nine, I believe. Nine. Yeah. So I mean, there's you can make it up all right there. Yep. Yep. So they'll have their chances. We talked a little bit about whether or not we wanted to play who's in first. Well, we're gave not, me one of them. We're not going to do that, <laughs> but I am going to give you the opportunity to give me the five teams in each league that you think would be in the playoffs oh, no. if the season ended today. So the Yankees are There's one. three division winners, two right. wild cards in each league. The Yankees would be one. Is Toronto currently in it? They would be, right? Just give me your five teams, and then I will... Let okay. you know how you did there, buddy. The Yankees, Toronto, is Houston. Uh, I'm terrible with the divisions. It's all right. You're, you're good. You got AL teams so far. Okay. So you got... Uh, the Mets would be one of them in the NL. Okay, let's try to do one at a time. <laughs> I know. I'm blanking. Oh, I'm so bad at this. All right. Well, clearly Don is not going to be able to do no. it. No. No. Um, that was an interesting game, but he, apparently he doesn't even know what league teams are in. Uh, you would have the Yankees out of the AL East, uh, the Royals, oh, the uh, Royals. The AL Central is just one I can't believe you don't get. I know eight and a half game lead, a huge lead there. Wow. Uh, Houston, you had that one. I did have that one. They still have a three game lead on the Angels. Uh, the wild card in the American League right now would be the Angels, who have a two game lead, and then get this: there is three ty- three teams. Uh, tied for that next one. Baltimore, one Minnesota, Toronto. And then there are three teams within three games of that. Wow. So, That's amazing. I, you know yeah. what? I, I'm obviously not a baseball guy, but it does always amaze me with 162 games how often it comes down to like the final week or even like a one-game playoff. Now, in the National League, we have the Mets. The Mets. One yeah. game up on the Nats. Dodgers? Uh, we have the Dodgers, three games up on the Giants. And we have who's been the best team in baseball for the last 10 years, uh, the National League. Uh, I'm going to say one of the – I have two guesses. I'm going to be wrong about it. The Giants. No. Cardinals. Yes. Okay. And then we have the Pirates, four games up on the first wild card, and the Cubs sneaking in. Wow. A half a game ahead of the Giants. That'd be fun. Not as many teams in it. The uh, Nationals are three back. Uh, then it drops to six. So it's not as close in the uh, National League. But there's more – it's more parity in the AL, more top-heavy in the Sure. AL. It'd be cool if the Cubs and Toronto could make it in. Last thing I want to talk about real quick was, did you hear anything today about the deal between uh, Major League Baseball and the National Hockey League? No. Um, a really cool thing, which is I think is going to be great for hockey fans, and I think good for the league. Uh, the league and Major League Baseball today announced a deal uh, to give control of um, apps, the website, team websites, um, and the, the network, which is the big thing, uh, to the Major League Baseball uh, media company. Okay. Um, so it's going to be great for hockey fans. Let me read you a few things right from the deal here. Uh, this is I have my source is SI.com. So it's a six-year partnership with uh, MLB Advanced Media. Um, it's worth $1.2 billion to the league, which is a nice haul for them. Anytime yeah. billions is involved. In the NHL, especially only six years, right? Um, as a result, they'll take over websites of the league of all, and all 30 clubs, uh, mobile applications, but the NHL retains editorial control. 
So it's not sure, like Major right. League Baseball is just writing on right. them. They're just uh, creating them, and they're good at this, by the way. Okay. Um, they also own the rights to distribute live out-of-market games through the Game Center live sh- streaming video service. So their online streaming of games is now going to be reworked by them. Okay. Um, that Oh, and also they'll have Center Ice. They'll be in charge of that. Uh, it doesn't include Canada, though. Canada is still their own deal, I guess. They'll also, this is the big thing, I think. They'll also oversee the NHL Network. Uh, helping the league with pro- programming and production, which they needed because the NHL Network stinks. I mean, the NHL Network is basically just a place to simulcast things from TSN. <laughs> right. Right? You know, like, when do they ever do anything? So that means they're going to move to Sea Caucus, New Jersey, uh, out of Manhattan, which I'm sure is a little bit cheaper. Sure. Uh, it starts in January. And uh, by all accounts, the big winners are the NHL, they get a nice billion-dollar payday, and the fans because... Uh, MLB AM is considered the gold standard for its ability to relay content to the public in slick, fast, and easily accessible formats. That's from the voice of uh, Alan Muir on SI.com. Highlights and updates should be more quickly available and easier to locate. Uh, Streams should be more reliable. Uh, It's possible that similar to MLB.com, there will be free live broadcasts uh, to enhance that. I think MLB.com is a free game every night. One game. Sweet. Um... And the app will be better, which the app sucks. I never so, tried oh, it. Oh, it's terrible. Um, so I'll be happy if they're streaming video changes and nothing else because they use some sort of weird player that just was never like overly mobile friendly. And I mean, MLB AM is Advanced Media is a, is a really great company from what I've heard. They were kind of the ones behind with US State today behind Sports on Earth. Okay. And we saw how great that was before. Unfortunately, they decided to gut it. I don't remember if it was them or if it was USA Today that backed out. It was one of the two. I don't remember which of the two. Um, but, no, this is great for hockey fans. So I thought it was worth mentioning here since we're hockey fans. And, like, another thing that's sort of underrated, you remember the game RBI Baseball? Love RBI Baseball. Right. Well, that's been rebooted uh, in app form. You can get it for, like, Sweet. I think, you know, they have it on Android. I'm not positive. Yeah, but I, I know RBI they have baseball. it in iPad. And, and it's awesome. It's really good. Now it's so like, assuming that they decide to make an NHL version of that, that'd be great. Now the RBI Baseball was NES, right? Like yeah. How long did it, it? So that's what the app version is, like the NES for, like the eight. Well, it's version? certainly not an eight bit game. Well, sure, right? It's, up, it's but yeah, same idea. Sweet. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. All right, we got it. We got through it. There did wasn't it. much. We <laughs> did it. You're scraping. There is not much. And of course, like this is the first full week that NFL camps have been available. And we talked almost not at all about anything that actually happened in that camps because I, I the league, mean, like, and of course, there's not going to be much the first week. They're stretching. They're barely in pads. Right. You know, not Arian much Foster has happened. Was the news. We did get to Arian Foster. That was a big thing. But that, I and know. I mean, there's beat reporters that are going to do that better for your team. Way better. I mean, what are we going to And we'll get break? them on when we can. Too. Sure. We love hearing from beat reporters. Yep. Next week, by the way, um, I'm sure I'll mention this again, is Ian Rappaport week. Cool. And he's uh, touring the camps right now. Okay. So we'll get to him next week, and we'll get some firsthand uh, knowledge from Ian at several camps. So that's that's great. We love talking to Ian every Yeah, year. yeah. All right. Uh, we'll take a break, and we'll come right back with guest number one. <laughs>
All right, our next guest is from Botel, Washington, and uh, is one of the main men over at the uh, now merged Figure Four Online and Wrestling Observer with Dave Meltzer. And uh, he's also one of the co-authors of a recent book club book of the month, The Death of WCW, uh, which now has a 10th anniversary edition, uh, which we talked about a few months ago. It's pretty awesome. And uh, that was when, Brian, we did something sort of experimental. We interviewed you and your partner separately and then just kind of just put them together without any kind of explanation or um, – I don't know. I don't know if it worked or not, but it was it was fun talking to both of you. And I love the book. And I'm glad to have you on today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um you know it's it's been a really it seems like pro wrestling gets in these these streaks kind of. Um where it just it seems like things are just going wrong and it almost like it just doesn't seem to stop. The hits just keep coming kind of. And I don't know if that's a real thing, you know, or if it's just a perception. I haven't actually sat down and like mapped out the wrestling tragedies to see if it's real, but it's just a feeling I have that like when this starts, it just doesn't stop. And we had, um, I guess a few a few months ago now, maybe if it's even been that long, when Dusty Rhodes passed away, and uh, we talked to Mike Johnson uh, when that happened, and he uh, shared some nice story and some insight on uh, Dusty's. Uh, impact on the business and since then we've been hearing it over and over from other people notably i don't know if you you had a chance to see it when Paige was on the steve austin podcast on monday um she gushed about the impact that he had with her uh so we know that and then you know um not necessarily the same thing but we had the uh the hogan uh scandal break obviously a lot different but uh for a lot of wrestling fans especially um when it happened. It, it maybe felt like, um, you know, the storyline was always that Hulkamania would never die, and it felt like maybe part of it did for a lot of people that day. And then now, uh, was it about a week ago, uh, we heard about the the passing of uh, Rowdy, uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, who I, I told my uh, I told my wife that this happened, and she said, "Oh no, Rowdy Roddy Piper died." So I I said, "Oh, slow down. You're you're not saying it right," but. This is what I want to ask you, and this is what I said, and I think probably I'm not the only one who who said this, uh, but it, it seems like for WrestleMania to have worked, you needed three things. You needed Vince McMahon, Hulk Hogan, and uh, Piper, and maybe Piper is a little bit underrated in that sense and maybe forgot of. What do you think about that? Well, I think that you you wouldn't have... Who knows what had happened if you hadn't had Roddy Piper in WrestleMania one? You, he was obviously a very, very important part of the the whole puzzle. He was he was a great promo. It I, obviously it would have been the same. Who knows if, if WrestleMania would have, would have, would have even happened? Uh, there there's no way to to know what Vince would have done. He was taking a big gamble on WrestleMania one as it was, and at the end of the day, it was a gamble to pay off. And and who knows what would have happened if it would have failed? There's so many stories about, well, you know, he was gambling the entire company on it. It would have gone out of business, et cetera, et cetera. Who knows what would have happened? But Roddy was, Roddy, Vince, and, and Hogan were the three most important cogs in the wheel that was WrestleMania 1. And, you know, Mr. T was a big part of it as well. Uh, I, I don't really, I can't say that anybody was underrated. I think that now, historically, when, when people that really understand wrestling look back, I think they, they really recognize how important all of those people were, but, but maybe the time 
maybe at the time he wasn't given the credit that he deserved, but I think certainly today, I think most people recognize that he was a very important part of that whole puzzle. Yeah, that, that's probably a fair point. Um, I think I, I told you a little bit about how you know WrestleMania three has always been such an important um, day for me as a wrestling fan, just because you know it happened at the. It could never be duplicated the way the age I was, the the connection I I had to the Hogan or excuse me the the Savage and the Steamboat feud, and uh, I was I watched uh, last uh, week Friday I watched a bunch of stuff I watched his DVD I watched his matches in WrestleMania one two and three. And um, I was watching him come into his match at three, and obviously he was the first person of the night to walk out instead of riding the cart, and uh, he did it pretty slowly. And then I read a, a quote that with him saying, you know, he always walked out real slow because he was good at um, he was good at reading the gates, and he wanted to make sure he didn't get stiffed later. And I kind of chuckled at that, and then <laughs> and then I wondered, you know, if maybe. Uh, there's always this debate, pro wrestling, sports entertainment, right? Was Roddy Piper one of the first true sports entertainers as opposed to pro wrestlers? Is he uh, sort of an innovator in that sense? I wouldn't say that. I mean, uh, I'll address that, then i got to talk about him counting the house. Sure, yeah. Roddy was, he, you know, there, there were sports entertainers go all the way back. I mean, literally the late 1800s, you had, you had sports entertainers. Uh, he was, for a lot of people, because because... Wrestling exploded on the national scene in the early 80s, and Roddy was a big part of that, and the Rock and Wrestling Connection, and WrestleMania 1, and WrestleMania 3. And, I mean, again, Mr. T was a huge mainstream name, and the fact that he was feuding with Rowdy Roddy Piper and Piper's promos, yeah, I mean, a lot of people will look back, and, and if those were their earliest memories of wrestling, they'll look back and go, man, this guy was the first. But in reality, there were there have been sports entertainers forever. As far as Roddy and the story of walking real slow so he could count the house, there were 78,000 people in that building. <laughs> so the idea that Roddy's walking He's out counting there them, yeah. And, and, <laughs> I mean, the, the reason I laughed when you first told that story is I have been doing a lot of interviews this week, and I've been listening to a lot of people talk about Roddy Piper and people that knew Roddy Piper, and I have been hearing all of these stories about Roddy and this guy was such a worker. This guy was such a... The stories that this guy told, with a straight face. <laughs> and and Roddy, was, Roddy was really good at convincing people that he was sincere. And actually, a lot of the, a lot of the greats are like that. Hulk Hogan is really, really good at it. Um, you know, guys like... I, I can't even really say Ric Flair, because I think Ric Flair's sincere about a lot of things. But guys like, like Roddy... I mean, they're, they're such workers, and they did such a great job in their lifetimes convincing people that these ridiculous stories that they told were true. I've had people insist to me that these stories that Roddy told them were true, and there's no way they were true. But that's the kind of guy that he was. I mean, you listen to interviews with the guy. I remember when, he, when uh, there was a TV show up in Canada called World of Hurt and Lance Storm. It was kind of like tough enough. And the first season had Lance Storm as the guy in charge, and, and Lance didn't want to do season two, and so they brought in Roddy Piper. And my God, this guy was just amazing on the show. I mean, just such a worker, full of these crazy stories, and these he would he would do these goofy promos, and he would seem in such a way that you listen to and you thought, oh my God, this is like coming down from the mount, 
You know, it's like the Lord speaking the gospel of wrestling. When you actually listen to what he was saying, he was completely full of it. He was just a crazy guy. But it was it's funny to hear that story about why he walked slowly. He was counting the crowd to make sure that he got paid on the house. <laughs> it's classic, Roddy. You know, uh, on Saturday, which was, I think, the day after the news broke, uh, here in Buffalo, Jake the Snake had his show here. Oh, uh, God, he's another one. Yeah, yeah, and uh, he... I, I think he's pretty new doing this show. You, I don't think he's been doing it long, and you could tell he's kind of getting his, his feet under him with it. But the, the story that he told about Piper, I don't know if he's told this before. I'm sure he has. Um, but he said that when he first worked with him, I think he said it was Mid-Atlantic, uh, that Greg Valentine told him that Piper was a big fan of snakes. So he took the snake over to introduce himself uh, to Piper and... Piper turned around, saw the snake, freaked out, went to his suitcase, and pulled out a pistol. <laughs> and uh, I was just sitting there thinking, well, if it's true, boy, it sure does play up the idea that this guy was just a, just a, a, a crazy, a controlled crazy person. And um, if it's not true, boy, it's uh, it's a good story for your for your show there, Jake. I don't know what you if you think if you'd heard that before or not, but um. Well, listen, I can tell you that he was a controlled, crazy person. I mean, yeah, that works. That fits, that, right. It, it's sad to see guys like, like Roddy Piper and Dusty Rhodes. And, I mean, Hulk Hogan didn't pass away, but his career is pretty much, you know, on death's door right. at the moment. Mm-hmm. Who knows where it'll be? But it's funny it, It's funny hearing the stories about, I mean, Dusty told all these crazy stories, and Hogan's had a lifetime of telling crazy stories. Uh, there was actually, I, I was just reading in the Gawker, uh, deposition for his, his sex tape. They're, they're deposing him and they asked him like four questions. Like, uh, are, are you, are you known for telling the truth? And he says, yes, brother. And they said, are you, are you known? So, but anyway, eventually they get to, uh, so you always tell it like it is. And Hogan just flat says, I don't know about that one. It's total Hulk Hogan. Like all of these guys. It's almost like the old folklorists. I mean, this is nothing new. It's not even anything specific to wrestling. I mean, uh, I don't know if it was Mark Twain or, or whoever it was. It, was. it was always about, you know, who cares about the truth as long as it's a good story? And it's exactly. All of these, these old workers, it's the same thing. Is it a good story? And if it's a good story, well, who cares if it's true? <laughs> this, is, this is wrestling. It's a work. And guys like Hogan and Dusty and and Piper, I mean... These guys getting out of wrestling, it, it really is, I'm only 40, but I've seen wrestling change a lot, and I don't want to sound like the old guy that's going, oh man, it ain't like what it used to be. But listen, it is not like what it used to be, because this generation of guys like Piper and Dusty, these guys are gone, and, and the new generation coming up today, it's just a different breed of wrestler. Right. I mean, they, they, they're just different. This is not a world where everything is a work and, and everything is about trying to screw somebody over or, or I mean, you're always going to have a little bit of that in wrestling, but it's, it's so different now than it was when these guys, I mean, you'd never have a guy as crazy as Roddy Piper, like in a headline position today, because it'd be too crazy. It'd be too much of a, I mean, they get, they get upset over, you got, you got in the ring and you say the word belt and you're probably going to yell that when you come backstage. I mean, the, the days of these, these crazy, out-of-control guys headlining and, and making millions of dollars because of their, their out-of-control personalities, those days are gone, and it's sad. 
Yeah, I, I actually I texted you on mistake, which I felt bad about. Uh, I was meant to text my friend. I was slipping out because um, when I was watching that Austin and Paige uh, interview, I couldn't believe how many insider terms they were using. I mean, they were throwing everything around. I'm thinking, wow, they because I thought I had read um, maybe in the it might have even been in the Observer that. Um, that they were pretty upset with the kind of level of inside uh, talk on the podcast on the network, and if that's the case, I mean they didn't back uh, back away the other day. But well, it's a, it's a little bit different because Paige, she's twenty one, but she's been wrestling for a decade, right? And you know her her parents. I mean, her mom was a wrestler, her father, and and this is this is on the on the UK indie scene where. I mean, you you had carnies and and you know she she is a link back to the older days of wrestling, even though she's only twenty one years old. Yeah, she's um, kind of old school for for her age, for sure. Yeah, like yeah. like a guy like I'll just throw out a name Enzo Amore. I mean, Enzo Amore was a guy who I guess him and Triple H uh, both had the same trainer, and this guy was a, a fan. And he put together like a like a DVD of him doing promos and him doing some strength work because he could, he had no wrestling background. And Hunter thought he had a great personality. He hired him, and he had started from scratch at the Performance Center. So if you interviewed him, I'm sure you'd get some insider terminology if, if you know you kind of got him going in that direction. But it would be nothing like Paige. I mean, Paige is that's just I'm sure she's been talking like that since she was ten. Or even before that, right. she's been hearing these kind of terms and terminology from her parents. They were promoters. They were wrestlers. I mean, she's she's way closer to. Um, it's probably going to sound pretty weird, but I mean, she's way closer to a, a Dusty Rhodes than a even probably a John Cena would be. Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting point. You know, I wanted to ask you, uh, being in the Northwest, and this is uh, something I had overlooked or forgot i forgot what a huge connection piper had to that territory and even the stories about how he wouldn't work it uh when he was with vince out of respect to the to the uh main promoter in the northwest growing up there did you did you have a connection to this territory and get to follow or see any of uh piper's uh time there or maybe a little bit before your time even and you're just a little bit older than what? i am yeah, I, I didn't watch a lot of uh, I didn't watch a lot of it during my early period of watching wrestling, but uh, in the '90s when I when I actually was wrestling, I had uh, a few run-ins with Roddy. He would actually we would run shows down in in Oregon, and uh, he would show up at the building sometimes. He showed up for uh, uh, I think the Capories were running in Portland. I can't remember the name of the building, but he would show up there and watch the shows and. When, when the new Portland wrestling started up, he was involved in that, and so I had to run into with him there. So, I mean, I I was more involved with him in wrestling in the Portland area than I was even watching him on on Portland wrestling. I mean, I watched a lot of it later on. I went back and watched stuff, and it was it was kind of amazing. Just the the you you would never see anything like it today, probably anywhere. But the the amount of heat. And the way that the audience reacted to these guys in the Portland territory was just, it would, it would completely blow your mind. Uh, but yeah, he was, uh, he was around here forever. He was a, a pretty well-known, he still lived in Portland. Uh, he was involved in things here and there in Portland over the last couple decades. So, you know, he was always, he was always a local guy. 
Yeah, that's so cool too that he just kept his ties there and that was just his place and um uh one last thing I want to ask you about Piper and then I'll ask just a couple quick things and I'll let you go cuz I know you you're out in uh Alaska, which is such a cool place to be. Um from the Homer, Alaska, at the end of the road. That is so cool. Such a I see really cool pictures uh, that you posted on your Twitter. Um is it's at Brian Alvarez, right? Is that right? That's right, at Brian Alvarez. Yeah, you gotta see some of these pictures he posted. So cool. Uh when I was watching the Piper D V D and also reading uh David Shoemaker's uh piece on Piper, I just think I love that guy and I love He's got the market sort of cornered on writing about dead wrestlers. I mean, it's almost poetic the way he does it. Um, and I was thinking about him and just thinking about, I was watching that DVD. And they're going through the different things and, um, you know, throwing the bananas and the coconut at Jimmy Snuka and uh, some of the things that he would say in the buildup with Mr. T and, um, just like maybe the most un-PC, un-2015 wrestler of all time. And I just respect and love that about him. Like, And it's it's uh, you were saying earlier about how we're never going to have someone like that again. And I guess it's just sort of impossible, right? I mean, you could never have a guy oh, God, uh, no. today. Maybe I mean, those days are over. He would be shut down for many of things. I mean, he essentially wrestled a WrestleMania ma- match in blackface, essentially. I don't think that's what he was going Half, for necessarily, yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's just uh, it's just incredibly uh, old school about Piper. Anything else you want to add about him? Maybe about um, what you think his uh, legacy will be on the business? Uh, what we'll always remember about him, no matter how far away we get away from it. Well, I mean, I he was just such a giant personality. I mean, somebody else had done an interview and they mentioned that. You know, everybody talks about Rey Mysterio, and, and he was the guy that broke the size barrier. And he absolutely did, but, I mean, he made a good point that in the 80s, it was this, this era of these, these giants. You know, Hulk Hogan was gigantic, Andre the Giant, even guys like the Warlord, the Barbarian. These guys were all huge. And then you had Roddy Piper, who, don't get me wrong, Roddy was not a small guy. And, and Roddy had a, had a pretty good physique, but he was nowhere near the size. Of, of some of these monsters, and he found a way through his personality and his promos and, and the ability to try to portray a larger-than-life crazy character to break through and be a real-life big-time main eventer. And he's a guy that, whatever you want to say about him, and there's plenty to say, uh, whatever stories were true or not true, what is true is that he was a great professional wrestling legendary character. And he's a guy that, that wrestlers from now until the end of time, especially with the WWE Network, they can go and they can watch these old videos of Roddy Piper in these interviews, and they can pick some stuff up. I mean, you're not going to go in there and, and steal some of the real crazy things he did, but look, look at the guy. Look at the way that he did the promos, the way he was poised, his, his charisma, his, his self-confidence, all of this stuff can help anybody who wants to be a pro wrestler from now until the end, no matter what wrestling becomes. I mean, you can look at, at pro wrestling, MMA, boxing, the entertainment world. You've got to be a larger-than-life character to be a star. And Roddy Piper, if you can capture even a little bit of, of his, his craziness, you can learn how to be a star. And so he'll always have that, and people will always have those videos to go back and watch. 
The sportscasters are here with Brian Alvarez from the Wrestling Observer and Figure Four Online, the author of Death of WCW, and we mentioned that he's on Twitter. He's at Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, Alvarez. Uh, just a couple of real quick things, and I'll let you go. Uh, I think maybe the – I don't think there's much money in it, but maybe the coolest job right now in uh, – in wrestling might be vetting the stories that Jake the Snake is uh, telling on this uh, on this tour um, or, you know, or stand-up or story show. I, I don't know. Um, I, I checked it out, and I know he's in Canada now, and, it, and it's going on, and, and it's pretty crazy. Uh, what do you think is kind of a, a guy who's wrestled, uh, a guy who's been in the working in the business a lot? What do you think about – I don't want to sound – too dorky asking this. I want to try to find the right way to say it. Um, but you know, when you think about about kayfabe and protecting the business and how important that once was, and when you think about people like Mick Foley and uh, Jr. does this, and uh, all the wrestling podcasts that are around, and um, by wrestlers, not just like uh, the awesome work that you guys do or a PW Insider, or whoever. Um, wh- what do you think about about the way the culture of uh, sharing things about wrestling has evolved to. Are you okay with it? Do you wish it wasn't that way? Uh, am I a- even asking a question? I'm not sure. What do you think? The only problem I have with any of it is if you want to talk about guys' real names and you want to talk about the inner workings of a match and you want to talk about or you want to show – to me, it's Snooka splashing some girls, and they not sell it, even though they're not trained wrestlers. I honestly, I don't care what you do, as long as it's not on the show. It, it, to me, wrestling is just like a TV show. It's just like a movie. Every actor, uh, take any, any crazy character that somebody's portrayed in a movie, and all of a sudden you see that guy, that actor, on The Tonight Show or whatever he's on, and he's out of character, and he's talking about the movie. Who cares? No big deal. Right. Uh, in fact, every time a movie comes out, the actors go on all of the talk shows, they do all of their interviews out of character, and they tell you why you need to go see the movie. It's not going to hurt. The, it's never hurt the film industry. It's never going to. If anything, it helps. However, in the middle of the movie, you never see something that takes you out of the movie. Ever. And if you do, the movie sucks. The same... Thing should be done in wrestling. It's a great wrestling is like a television show. Vince even says, we're making movies. If you're making movies, there should never be a moment where you alert the audience, this is all fake. That this is all goofy. That you shouldn't take this seriously. It takes you out of your enjoyment of pretending it's real. The days of anybody in their right mind thinking that any of this is real are long gone. And WWE is still making Hundreds of millions of dollars a year. The, the, the idea that it's fake is going to hurt the business, I mean, you could throw that out the window. But in the middle of a show, letting the people know it's fake, there's no benefit to it whatsoever. And I think that that's the biggest thing that bothers me about any of this. I don't want, to, I don't want people on my wrestling show talking about ratings. Who cares about it? Why would your average fan care one bit about ratings, who's drawing ratings, no one cares. They watch wrestling. They want to get involved in the, the characters. They want to get involved in the stories. They want to escape for two hours, even though they have to escape for three. 
and they want to enjoy the thing <laughs> and, and see their favorite guy beat up a guy they don't like. That's it. <laughs> and, and as long as you can keep doing that, there will always be a professional wrestling business. But the, the quickest way to drive off fans and, and to make fans think that this is stupid and not worth investing in is when you do things in the middle of the show that make them feel stupid, that take them out of their enjoyment of watching the product. We see it all the time in wrestling. That bugs me. Everything else, shoot interviews, see awesome podcasts, all of these shows on the network, after the show's over, I don't care. But on your television shows and your pay-per-views, pretend it's real. That's it. That's a hilarious line, by the way, that they're looking to escape for two, but they have to for three. Do you do you mean as well, like, do you does it bother you that, like, when Cena took that, that nose bump, that the doctor keeps coming in in the middle, or... Can they do that and no, still? No, that's great. That's good too, right? Because it's sort of like if this were a real sporting event, right? Of course they would check and his John nose. Yeah, had his face destroyed like that. There's <laughs> right. a doctor in there doing that exact same thing. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, are you uh, relatively speaking? Are you excited for for SummerSlam? You think that they're going to put? I know. I know there's still only technically what one match announced, but when we see what they're building to, it feels pretty good to me. I don't know. You on the same page or or no? I think it's going to be a pretty good show. Yeah, I'm. So. I'm I mean, one of the big things about WWE is because the business has changed, I feel like I've seen the same matches nine million times. And at least The Undertaker and Brock Lesnar is a match we haven't seen for a year and a half. It's something brand new. And, uh, you know, the, the John Cena-Seth Rollins deal, title versus title, I mean, my, my gut tells me we're not going to see a finish. But it is still one champion who's the main champion, and a secondary champion who's actually been pushed harder than the main champion. So, so you've got something intriguing there. I, I think that, that they're, the idea of making SummerSlam like a, a mid-year WrestleMania is a good idea. Mm-hmm. I think that, uh, you know, with four hours, they got plenty of time to, to take their time. And I wish I could see all of the... I mean, we will be able to see the takeover thing. But that's pretty cool on the weekend. I, I'm more excited for this than any show since Mania. Yeah. So I, I think that they're they're moving in the right direction, and they should. I mean, they're gonna have they're using the whole arena for the NXT show, and it sounds like they're gonna fill it. And um, they should have great crowds in Brooklyn, and uh, and uh, they're doing Raw in Brooklyn too the next night, right? All three things. That's right. Yeah, right there. All so. three in the Barclays Center. Yeah, that should be really cool. And um, you know, I know uh, I am definitely a Cena mark. There's no doubt about it. And I know people don't like them. There's the, the split. Uh, but I think he's been the wrestler of the year so far, at least, you know, uh, maybe there's someone better in Japan. I'll admit I'm not a big indie or Japan guy or anything like that. I was born in the Northeast and I was pretty much a WWF loyalist my whole life, but I just think he's had maybe the best year of his career, at least the best one that I've, uh, followed. And, um, uh, I guess I'll ask you this, the last thing, um, he's what one title reign behind, uh, what they acknowledge as the most, I think he's at 15. I think they acknowledge 16 as the most. Do you think he gets two more before he's done? Do you think that that's a particular goal or something that, like, when they give that up, that he would be the guy that they would want to do it for? Um, Or is that not even anything anyone's thinking about but people like me for no reason? Well, I mean, I think that based on the way that they've been pushing him, he's, he's been moved down the card. He was the U.S. champion they were going to make Roman Reigns the new John Cena. I mean, based on everything that they've done, I don't know if the idea was ever for him to break the record. I, I think in their mind he was going to be 15 times, 
Maybe down the road, with the right circumstance, he ties the supposed record of Ric Flair. Uh, now that Roman Reigns is not taken off, and they don't have anybody to replace John Cena right now, and here he is back in the main event at SummerSlam, and, and who knows, he may even win and become the champion. I mean, my guess is that unless they get Roman Reigns going or somebody else, inevitably he probably is going to break that record, uh, which I don't think was their intention in the first place. Uh, Hunter, obviously, a big Ric Flair fan, and he's got more power than ever. I don't know if, I don't know if he wants to break Flair's record, but... You know, there were people that argued forever. Nobody should break the Undertaker streak. One day Vince decided, streak's ending. Right. So there, there's no way of knowing how people are going to think what their ideas are down the road. I mean, the fact that he's at 15, the fact that they don't have a new John Cena, the fact that he's only 38 years old, I mean, it seems inevitable that he's going to break the record. But who knows? Yeah, it's almost like we felt this way about Tiger Woods in 2009 and then his wife chased him out of the house with a golf club, and it just never happened. Um, <laughs> never with John Cena. Right, so maybe, that, maybe Nikki Bella will chase him out of the house with a golf club, and we will never uh, get that 16th reign. But I don't know. I think he's had a great year, and I think that – I wonder if, like, oddly the uh, – you know, I always thought that the one great thing about him was that he seemed to love wrestling the most out of anyone that's worked for, on top. Um, and maybe that's not fair to Austin. Maybe he loved it this much. I, I don't know that I believe Hogan did, and The Rock certainly didn't have a problem even for movies and stuff. Um, but he uh, he seems to have really, like, like maybe going into WrestleMania, the plan was let's put the mid-card belts on Brian and, and Cena and see if they could ele- elevate them. And he sure did take that challenge and elevate them. And then when Owens came in or even Sami Zayn right before, it's almost like he has worked so hard to try to, like, be at the level with those guys when they enter the ring with him. And usually if you're a guy at top, you don't worry about that. Like, you just do your thing. And I think that's sort of unique about him. I don't know. Maybe I'm too big of a, a mark for Cena, though, maybe. I, well, I, really I, mean, I, mean, I think all those names loved wrestling. I mean, everybody gets on The Rock, but here's the deal with The Rock. Yes, he left to make movies because he liked making movies, and he had the opportunity to make a ridiculous amount of money. And everybody listening to this right now, no matter what they do with their job, they have something else they love in life. And if somebody offered them a ridiculous amount of money to go do that, I guarantee they'd do it. And Rock, having made all that money, this guy never had to come back. And, and did, Rock right? always yep. goes out of his way to find some way to come back, even though he doesn't have to, he doesn't need to, he certainly doesn't need the money, he certainly doesn't need the fame, but he always comes back. And, and a lot of guys wouldn't do that. So that's I'm pretty a great sure point. that guy loves wrestling an awful lot as well. Yeah, that's a great point. And he is always there. He's got a mainstream media buzz all the time, and he all, will always use that to uh, to protect wrestling and to say uh, good things when he's asked about it. So, you no, you're right about that. No, he that's that's unfair of me to say that. Listen, Brian, thank you so much. It's already more time than I asked for, and I want you to go enjoy your vacation more than talk to me. Uh, a great book that you have to read is The Death of WCW. And uh, just a few months ago, they released a 10 your anniversary collection. It's a beautiful hardcover book, uh, or you can even get a uh, like a ebook version uh, is out there as well. Um, R. D. Reynolds and Brian Alvarez wrote this book. It's amazing. Uh, we talked about the Twitter. It's at Brian Alvarez uh, with a Y, uh, sort of like Daniel Bryan. Same spelling there. Um, you can go to WrestlingObserver.com or you can type in F number four one or WOnline.com as well to get the Wrestling Observer and Figure Four Online and 
Um, for those who aren't big wrestling people or uh, looking to learn more, this is the this is the spot for the uh, the info. Um, best reputation um, and great MMA stuff as well. Uh, anything else you want to let everyone know about where to find uh, what you do or anything like that? That's pretty much it. Just the uh, website wrestlingobserver.com. I do a million radio shows and links to all of them are right there on the front page. Pretty much everything you need is on the front page at wrestlingobserver.com. So head up there and check it out. Thanks so much, Brian. I appreciate this. Hi, right, thanks so much. That's a new one. Yeah, Final Fantasy, that's X2. Oh, all right. You know that I've never played one second of a Final Fantasy game? I haven't either. And I'm not like a... It's an RPG. I'm not like an RPG hater or anything. I've just... I haven't played any of them. Huh. NES or otherwise. All right. Well, I want to thank our first guest. That was good, wasn't it, Don? Great. I like that. Uh, real quick book club update. Last week on the podcast, Season 5, Episode 23. You can find it on our website. We should give this now. We'll give it at the end, too. But All right. So we're talking about it. You can find it on our website, www.sports-casters.com. On iTunes by searching the Sportscasters and, of course, Stitcher and all of the other uh, pod-catching apps. And we always say if you need help uh, seeing the podcast somewhere where you're not for some reason, email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. We'll see if we can help you. I'm thinking that uh, but it's we've probably done good, good in that yeah, regard because yeah, we've don't been get saying up. that for a while. And there was a time where people we would did, right. tell us and we did fix we them. We fixed it, yeah. so. Um, the Secret of Golf, the story of Tom Watson and Jack Nicholas, is a book by Joe Poznanski that we talked about with Joe Poznanski yep. uh, last week on the podcast, Season 5, Episode 23, and it was great. Um, we've talked a little bit about recently, and I don't mind rehashing it just because um, it's a short segment anyway, about the interesting history that this podcast has with, with Joe, Joe Poznanski. I mean, he's one of the biggest writers in the first season. Episode six, he was on, right? Which is nuts. He had no business being here. He had Jeff Passon had no business being here at one. He had no business in six. And Butcher Grass was like three. And I mean, it was silly at first, right? Deitch was really early. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you know, with his Paterno book and uh, the Wertheim comments and the heat between those two for it, and finally getting him on. And now this is his book after that, The Secret of Golf. The Story of Tom Watson and Jack Nicholas by Joe Poznanski. Check it out. And, of course, check out our interview with him last week. Mm-hmm. The other book is The Best Team Money Can Buy. The Los Angeles Dodgers' wild struggle to build a baseball powerhouse. I love this book. I would say it is the early leader in the clubhouse for Book Club Book of the Year uh, last year. Oh, and we should announce that we decided the third winner – or no, fourth winner – of the book club book of the year was, of course, uh, Console Wars. Sweet. Um, we were thinking that we should do that, and we did. So so what do we have? Sweetness was the first winner mm-hmm. by Jeff Perlman. Then we had a Dream Team right. by Jack McCollum. Then we had The Squared Circle by David Shoemaker. Okay. And now we have Console Wars by Blake J. Harris. And Blake will be with us soon to discuss... The documentary. Uh, the documentary version of that book. We just want to become friends with uh, Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen. <laughs> uh, and if not, we'll be glad to be friends with Blake. Because he's sure. an author that the show has gotten very close to. Yeah, he's to. been great. And he's really appreciated what we've done and we've appreciated him. And he's a big Mets guy. He's got to be pumped about 
uh, the excitement going on yeah, in, yeah. in Queens with them. Uh, but The Best Team Money Can Buy is a book by Molly Knight, and I think she's going to be on next week uh, in the Ian Rappaport. Yeah, I've seen a lot of correspondence on She's everywhere, Twitter. for yep. sure. And we've been uh, talking with her, and the book is great, and I'd encourage you to read it. And Molly will be on, I think, next week. Uh, two other really quick things I wanted to mention. One is one of the books that we'll be doing next month for sure is a book by a really great friend of the podcast, someone who's actually been one of the hosts before, um, and that's Adam Lazarus has a new book okay. out. Uh, it's about the Redskins. I think it's actually called Hell to the Redskins, and it's about the 80s to early 90s version of the team, and I told him even if the book sucks, I look forward to talking to you about Angela <laughs> Rippon. Does he uh, does he touch on the Redskins' name at all? Do you know? I'm positive he would. Must, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I just actually got a PDF of that. Cool. Uh, so I'm going to start looking at it. And uh, hired copy books are coming. I'm sure I'll have a copy, probably signed by Adam, to give out. Um, and that will be one next month. And then the other one that I'm I just talked to the author yesterday, and I'm going to email his publicist. I don't know if you've seen any of these. You know these articles on Facebook where it's like. You won't believe what this person said. Like clickbait. Yeah. Yep. Well, I don't know if you noticed, but there's been all these Allison Chains ones late, lately. No. Like, Courtney Love talked to Lane Staley about Kurt Cobain not being a suicide, or Lane Staley's mom said this, or there's been all these Allison Chains ones. Okay. And the reason is because there's a book out. It got released yesterday called The Untold Story of Allison Chains. And it looks sick. And. When I heard the untold story of Allison Chains, I said, yes, their story is not told. <laughs> you know, like of all the Seattle bands, yeah, the four yeah. of them, I feel like I know the least about Allison Chains. Yeah, that's probably right, yeah. Uh, so I reached out to him, and I think it'll be super fun next month if we are reading an Allison Chains book and then ultimately doing like a 25-minute interview with an author about Allison Chains on the podcast. Uh, yeah. so, Do you know the author at all? Or um, you, I mean, familiar with anything else he's done? I don't know his work. No, his name is David D. Sola. I'm looking at his Twitter right now. He's at David D-E-S-O-L-A on Twitter. Um, Allison Chains, The Untold Story is the official name of the book. Um, okay, here he's a writer, journalist at Tufts University. Um, he's a Georgetown alum uh, and the author of this book. He's out of Los Angeles, DavidDSola.com. All right. And I talked to him yesterday and he said reach out to his publicist. So I'm doing that. That would That'd be fun. I'd be into that. Yeah. That might be one you'd even read. Oh, yeah. All right. We're going to take a break and come back with another sick guest. Our next guest is a writer and filmmaker based in New York City. And is the author of Console Wars. There's a book called Book of the Month last year. And we're featuring it again this year as it was just released on paperback. There's a documentary film in the works. And uh, this guy's making his second appearance on the podcast today. Warren Sportscasters, welcome to Blake Harris. What's going on, Blake? Thank you for having me back. Uh, that's an honor in itself. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, we really appreciate it. You know what? I was just about to tell you this. I said I should tell him on the air is... We feature a book or two or three a month, and we've been doing this since 2011. And a lot of times, uh, 
we'll feature a book and it will come out in paperback, like in this case. And we really like the author, really like the book. So we'll say, hey, you want to do this again? And most of the time they say yes. And uh, it, it's it's mixed sometimes. Sometimes people are like, eh, we did that already. It's tougher to get up as much interest. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes if it's just some book about a basketball team or something like that or a football book, people are pumped. But something about this book – uh, people feel, uh, I don't know if it's just straight up a nostalgia or if it's a love for video games or what it is, but as soon as we mention this book, uh, people just get excited. There's like, have you found a more of a, a more love affair ownership of this book with the readers than you might have expected going into it? Yeah, I definitely have. And I think that, you know, you touched upon it. It's definitely nostalgia plays a huge part of it. Um, you know, my favorite part is throughout the past four years of writing the book and doing the documentary, whenever I tell someone that I'm working on this project or start to tell them what it's about, they always cut me off to tell me about their memories. So it means so much to everyone personally, and everyone has these great memories and feelings associated with it. And I think also, kind of like we were talking about last time, um, you know, there, there are so few books in the video game industry that this book's, probably, you know, the fact that it's published and the fact that it's been successful in a way, sort of legitimizes or helps push the industry forward. So I think there's that, that aspect as well. But yeah, I, I, I'm very happily surprised by how much readers have loved the book and how often I've heard from people saying that they're reading it for the second or third time or that they read the book and now they're listening to the audio book. And that's amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah, it just seems like people just care about this one a little bit more. Now, when we had you on the first time last year, it was the first run of the book, uh, the hardcover. And uh, we really enjoyed that. Now, sometimes when the paperback comes out, uh, there's an extra chapter, updates. I think in this case, it's a reprint, though, right? It's just uh, the same book? Or is there – I haven't gotten my copy yet, so I don't. I apologize for that. But um, <laughs> Yeah, it's exactly the same. Exactly the same, okay. Um, I've, I've actually started to prepare additional material that I would uh, – that I would like to be in some sort of ultimate edition or a future edition – and I think that we're going to do something like that around the time of either the documentary coming out or the feature film coming out. But there's definitely some great stuff that I couldn't fit into the book, either because it didn't fit narratively or, honestly, some things I didn't know. This book, one of the nice things for me is that it's brought forward more stories from the people, and a part of me thinks it's a bummer that I wasn't able to get in, but the more curious part of me is thinks that's great. At least I know this now. Maybe I can write an article about it, or maybe it'll be in a future edition. You know, one thing that's uh, interesting about books today is that people are reading them in a lot of different ways. And we talk to authors about this all the time. Like, obviously, people will go to Barnes & Noble and pick up the hardcover. There's that traditional way. But there's also the iBooks now, and you mentioned audiobooks. Um, how do you think this book lends itself to just the different platforms. Do you think that this, because sometimes we'll have an author in here and he's like, you know, I did the, I did the, the ebook thing, but I really wish I, I didn't because it's just not, it doesn't give the right experience. And now other times people are like, Oh, this format was perfect for it or audiobooks was perfect for it or whatever. What about uh, console wars and how it lends itself to the different formats that are involved with uh, reading a book in, in the 21st century? Um, I think it's kind of a personal choice. So uh, I, I, don't read ebooks. I because I feel like I I just really enjoy the tactile experience, and it's almost like 
I like the idea that my eyes went through every line in a single book and that I have that book as a reminder or even as a trophy. And I found that when I read ebooks, I wasn't remembering as much. But it seems convenience-wise, like, that's no way that a lot of people enjoy it. But and in the case of Cosworth, I think the audiobook seems to be the preferred way to consume it. And that's probably, I mean, one, it's because Fred Berman, who did the narration, did such an awesome job. But two, it's partially because I wrote the book almost like it were a movie or to be sort of read like with where you can be in the room and in the scene with these people. And I think that having it narrated that way has been really successful and people really respond well to that. And I'm sure that has made transitioning to a documentary uh, all that much easier and more natural, right? Um, since the way the book is written is uh, almost feels like a screenplay already. Ha- have you found in working on the documentary that it's been a pretty smooth transition? You know, that's an interesting question because yes and no. I mean, I definitely always had having a screenwriting background and, and loving film that, that was always in the back of my mind. And even as I was doing stuff or listening to the stories from these people, I thought, Oh, that'll work well for a documentary or that would work well for the book or what have you. But it's really strange to condense. The, the book is 550 plus pages and the right. documentary is 90 minutes as you know, and a feature film will be around 90 minutes or two hours. And it's just, it's hard to, to, to only sit sort of the bigger beats when I know and care so much about the story that, you know, to tell, I guess what I'm saying is that when you're doing a, a feature film or documentary, it inherently has to be a little bit more superficial, not in a negative way, but it has to really just touch upon the bigger subject. And so much of what I enjoyed about the book console wars is really getting into the minutia of the context. So that has been sort of an interesting challenge, though, because there is kind of like the structure set up in the book with like, you know, the big moments are the release of the Genesis, the release of the Super Nintendo, Tom joining Sega, the creation of Sonic, um, the Senate subcommittee hearings, you know, that definitely helps set up things much easier for the documentary or, or for any form of storytelling than I imagine most cases or most documentaries where you kind of have to find the story in the edit. I can just kind of picture you like in an editing room or, or sitting in front of a uh, a, a computer saying, I can't believe I got to let this part of the book go and not be a part of the movie. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. And, you know, I guess um, in in, uh, in one way, I, I can't imagine what that would be like for a filmmaker doing it where they don't have a book because at least I can think, all right, I'm cutting this from the documentary, but at least, you know, if you're very interested in the story, you can, you can read more and learn more, so at least I have it out there. Uh, but, but on the other hand, I do know so much of it that it is bad to, to see that stuff go. But, but at the same time, you know, if, if I had the choice of doing a 90 minute documentary or a four hour one, it's definitely better to do it 90 minutes. There's a reason to things around that length. Um, you know, it needs to be accessible and it needs to be lean and keep moving. And one thing that I'm really proud of that we've been able to do with the documentary is that uh, me and the co- my co-director, Jonah Tulis, um, we, it was very important to us that we didn't have a narrator and that we didn't have outside voices like historians or or people who weren't actually living through the moments. And so far, we've been able to craft a cut that's told completely in the voice of the characters themselves, and that's really how we wanted it, and, and, and I think it's really nice to, to see it through their eyes. When you prepared to do the documentary, did you think in your head at all like 
okay, I've seen these books come into movies and I don't want it to end up like that. Or I've seen these books go into movies and that is more like what I want. Um, did did seeing other books morph into movies uh, change or create or develop the way you develop this project? Um, another good question. I think that the fact that the documentary exists is kind of because so few, so few books that have been adapted into feature films have had that documentary step in cases where it's a true story. And, and those were things that I craved. Like, I love the movie Moneyball. I love the book Moneyball. I love Social Network. And I love Ben Mesrick's book, The Action of the Billionaires. But in both cases and other similar situations, I would have loved to see a documentary. And, and you know, as good as Jesse Eisenberg was as Mark Zuckerberg, I would have liked to see Zuckerberg himself or the, the Winkle guy. Um, and so there, there aren't a ton of nonfiction books that are adapted into a documentary format because usually it's a documentary will get adapted into a feature film or a book well, but it's rarely both. So I think that the fact that that doesn't happen um, and the fact that I wanted it was part of why we even did it. Um, if that answers the question. Yeah, you know, and, and I think that maybe in the past uh, authors have been more likely to turn their their books into films as opposed to documentaries. But I wonder if that's going to change because it really seems like we're entering sort of a golden age of documentaries in a sense with all of the ways that content can be consumed now, whether it's Netflix or, you know, HBO Go, uh, Showtime. Um, I mean, ESPN's 30 for 30 series. It just seems like there's so many more places for these films to be. And, my brother and I, we love documentaries, and it just seems like as every month passes, uh, the accessibility of a documentary is 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 greater. The example I always think of is uh, every year I have I, I always look to see what the nominated people do this with Best Picture, what films are nominated in the Oscars, and then they watch them all. Well, I always used to do that with documentaries. And I remember the one year uh, there was a football movie uh, that won. I don't know why I can't think of the uh, name of undefeated. it. Undefeated. Undefeated, right. right. And yeah, yeah. I could not watch this movie. You know, it didn't screen in Buffalo, so I couldn't go to a theater and watch it. You know, it was just nowhere for months and months and months. And then finally, I think Walmart actually released it on DVD, and I went and picked it up. But things like that are happening less and less. There's just so many more opportunities. Uh, and this turned into a really long question. But um, do, you, do you get no, that no, sense as well? Right. Like, not only were documentaries, say, even as recently as five years ago, were they harder to to find that distribution for, but I also think to some degree there was a stigma of it not being nerdy, but it was like it wasn't as much a mainstream form of entertainment. But um, the success of Netflix with documentaries, and especially the ESPN 30 for 30 series, has, yeah. has done a great job of making it where, you know, people are more likely to just want to throw on a documentary and see where it goes. And um, so I do think that we're kind of headed towards a golden age. And I, and I will say that um, I would hope that kind of like more people would follow my lead or at least be in a similar situation where I was doing these interviews anyway for the book. And then it was definitely a little more difficult to, to deal with hiring a camera crew and, you know, arranging for these, spending days with these people and all the travel, but, but it helped me make a better book 
And then at the end, we now had all this great material. So it was like killing two birds with 1.1 stones, you know, like putting in a little bit extra more work at that point just to have end up with these two great ways of telling the story. Do you guys have a distribution plan in place for when the film is finished already? Or is that something that you work on after? Or how does that work exactly? I'm not even sure. Um, we don't have anything in place. We have, so Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, um, who are also doing the feature film version of the book. They are producing the documentary, as is Scott Rudin, who's also involved with the feature film. Um, the feature film will be with Sony Pictures, but uh, we have nothing in place at, for the documentary at this time, and it will ultimately be up to Scott, um, Seth, and Evan. Okay. So we'll see, but if I have to defer to any people, those are the three people um, right, who right. I have to defer to. So basically you get the pro- project finished, and then you, you take meetings, right? And you go to this place, and you go to Netflix, and you go here, and, and you see what's up. Is that basically how it works? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in an ideal scenario, I mean, maybe you screen it at a film festival and, and you get oh, and someone might all buy those it people there. together. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, it, it, I, I can understand why it would be valuable for some filmmakers um, to have distribution in place ahead of time. A lot of times just because of the fact that you have a budget for the film and it can help pay for that. Uh, but in this case, we've been lucky enough not to need that. And it's definitely, as a filmmaker, been great not to have to work on any specific deadline. Um, in that regard, and to kind of just make sure that we get the best story possible. Uh, how important has having people like Evan and Seth involved been to the whole process in general? Um, I mean, you could probably answer that as well or better than me. I think that this is my first book, and there's a lot of people who write first books that are that are good, but it's still hard to get the word out, and, and having the support of Seth and Evan and having them write the forward was huge in terms of getting the word out that that's probably how you initially heard of the book or, you know, I guess I would, I would throw the question at you. How, how much do you think it has made a difference in, uh, in, in marketing purposes for console wars or in the way that people think of the book? Well, I'm positive it, it has helped because, uh, those guys have a following, right? I mean, when they put their name on something, there's a bunch of people who will respond to that no matter what. You know, right. like, uh, oh, hey, those guys are saying this. All right, well, I'm a fan of that, so let's see what that is. But uh, personally, I mean, I, I think there's uh, there was a, 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 a Canadian music blogger that just I follow on Twitter because we like both like the Canadian band Moist. Um, and she posted a link, I believe, to the book. And that's how I found out about it initially. And I thought, such a cool book. And then that's how things started. I don't, I don't know that. Uh, that that would have happened or not with with Seth because I don't know if that's I, I don't know how far back I can trace it like as long as she was going to read it one way or another I would have found out because that's how I did but maybe she only read it because of those guys that I don't know but um, yeah I don't know and, yeah. and either way I guess I, I don't care that much because I'm glad that at least it's getting into people's hands and it doesn't ensure that they would like it just because it's something that Seth and Evan have put their names on, but at the same time, it definitely gets out to more people. And, you know, it kind of, in a way, part of the desire to, to reach out to them or to try to find someone um, to produce a documentary in the feature film with that was of the caliber of themselves was, like, looking at what Sega did during this time period. So I almost think of it, like, in the way that Joe Montana had his name on Joe Montana Sports Talk Football. And, you know, any of those games, whether it's John Madden or... 
technical junior baseball, the games themselves have to be good or, you know, they'll generally succeed or fail on the quality of the game, but it will help get the word out and, and help, you know, influence a little bit the way you perceive it, potentially. Um, so it's something that could help. Uh, it's something that almost definitely helps, um, but I like to think that at the end of the day, the book still has to be good. Yeah. You know, this is something I was, I was thinking about, too. I was looking around on your website, BlakeJHarris.com, and uh, I was looking at the appearances that you've done in front of them, T- whether it's TV, uh, radio, um, podcasts, all kinds of different things and getting the book out. And thinking about some other interviews we've done, like uh, Jeff Perlman uh, did a book, uh, Showtime, about the Lakers. And we had him at the – he was everywhere for a bit uh, promoting that, which was great. Uh, Jeff's Is he the guy who did uh, the How the Bad Guys one book? Yes. Yep, okay. same guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I like that book. great author. Uh, really good yeah. books too. Uh, Sweetness, his book on Walter Payton is maybe the best sports book I've I've read uh, in doing this the last few years. But um, he was at so many places that I got really paranoid that I wouldn't be able to ask him uh, anything that would he would be still excited about answering. I, but the good thing was I got a pretty good idea of what those things would be. I figured he'd be sick of. Uh, bird versus magic, uh, aid stuff with magic. Like they're they're real easy to pick out. Um, we had Anthony Cumia on uh, a few months ago, and, and going into that, I said I don't want to spend fifteen minutes or even five on why he got <laughs> fired or those tweets because he's done that interview so many times. Um, and I was thinking about you, like now that you're a year into this project or more uh, promoting it. I mean, um, is there a thing that when you sit down to talk about this book that comes up over and over, is there a part of this that you're, you're sort of sick of? And the opposite of that, is there a part of this, something in this book that you wanted to talk about more when you do this, but yet somehow it just never comes up? Uh, well, to answer your first question, if there's anything I'm sick of, no. And, and that might sound like a, a stock answer, but it's not. Cause you almost think about it like, you know, this is my first book. This, means the world, this, this Sega Nintendo battle meant the world to me growing up. That's obviously meant an enormous amount to me spending the past four years doing this. So it almost is like a love story for me, and, and I feel like if you ask a married couple, you know, if you guys ever get sick of talking about how you met, uh, I mean, maybe some people would, but I think that's a story that people like telling over and over and over, because it just reminds them that they tell it, like, you know, how unlikely and how pleasant it all turned out. Um, so I very sincerely... There's, there's nothing I don't really like talking about, and I especially love talking about the writing process or the or how it all came together. Um, in terms of, I don't, nothing comes to mind that I haven't been asked. But uh, feel free to ask me anything. Um, <laughs> did, did you have anything? Did you have anything? No, I was just like I was, I was thinking like uh, you know I was thinking about like these like you know when you write a book like this there's. So many different like I've seen. Oh, this is something like you had these. You've you've had excerpts of the the book printed and um, and sort of something with Perlman too. Like he had an excerpt of his sweetness uh, in SI that got a really big blowback. And I, I asked him, you know, would you have printed something different? And he's like, ah, eh, maybe. You know, I don't know. But I was thinking about that. Like when you're when you're picking something out of this book, uh, this book which is made up of all these different anecdotes or stories or chapters, and and when you wrote that chapter, you probably will think back like, oh, I remember when I wrote about uh, Madden. Uh, I was at this point in my life, and this happened. It's like these reflections as the author, like all those parts, <laughs> right. like mean something to you. And I, I guess I was just thinking like 
did any of those like times or those anecdotes kind of just get lost in the shuffle or left behind that you wish maybe would come back more because they maybe make you feel a certain way or something like that? I think this is a question that I really want. I'm just not quite talented enough to phrase properly, I guess, maybe. <laughs> I think you're getting it. Well, for one, I just, it's, it's nice to me that I can open the book. Like, right now I'm opening the book to a random page 115. And I, and I remember what I, like, where I was that day when I wrote it, probably what I was eating, or I usually keep the TV on, what I was watching. Um, so, in a way, it's nice that it's nice that everything brings back memories for me. Um, in that respect, it probably always will. Um, like, as for the excerpts, um, there, there were a few places that published excerpts and it was kind of interesting how it happened. Like, Rantland was really important to me because I, I love that website. And uh, I spoke to their editor, and he, uh, you know, a natural fit would have been the first chapter, but um, he thought that it was too, like, in the moment, which is kind of what the story was, and he wanted something that would better touch upon the nostalgia of that era, so we ended up going with the Nintendo chapter. Um, and then there was a few other places where it was, like, similar situations where I either had a rewrite parts of it or, or tailor it for an audience. But, you know, I guess I didn't feel like there was one shot and I needed to, to throw the exact right pitch. Um, I was trying to think, like, in terms of stuff I haven't been asked about or haven't really talked about, um, the, the last week of writing the book was very, very insane. Because we were filming the documentary throughout a lot of the book writing period, um, I, I didn't get to write as much of the book as I had wanted to. Or, you know, I didn't get to write, didn't, didn't get to spend as much time as I wanted to on the book because I was doing the documentary and Harper Collins and my editor, Mark Tate, were very understanding or as much as I would reasonably expect them to be. But there was a hard deadline for my draft and it was December 17th and on December 10th I had only about 80% of the book or 85%. Oh. So I wrote the last 100 pages or so <laughs> in like a week. Um, and it turned out that I ended up having time to go over it and kind of fix things that maybe felt rushed, but, uh, you know, and, and it, like, these were all the chapters I had planned, so it's not like I cut things or, or took shortcuts in that regard, but that was probably the craziest week of my life, um, and it was also, it happened to be my birthday, which, I, so, I felt like I didn't have a birthday that year. <laughs> In but the it, holiday just, season? It was, it was just really insane, um, that, that was something that I will never forget, and my fiance and I were talking the other day, and I asked if, I guess we're talking about either of us have ever seen so depressed or, or stressed that we were worried about each other. And she said that she never had been about me except for that last week. She was like legitimately worried about how it would turn out, but it turned out well. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that feels very like college to me in a way, you know, like we all go through <laughs> that in college, like this. Cause you know, some, did you feel like you wrote, that some of the best stuff you wrote was during that time? Like, sometimes we write the best when we're up against yeah. that line in that way. Yeah, no, I guess that's the part of it that I find surprising and now that I'm not in it, really nice, is that I, I felt like the quality was as good or better than everything else. Yeah. Probably so much so that I questioned the, you know, in future writing if I should do it on such a short deadline, at least for a draft, because, you know, I, I, like a typical chapter, I would say that my schedule was like I wake up at, um, I go to sleep very late, but I would wake up at like um, eight or nine, sometime in the middle of Mike and Mike, watch the rest of Mike and Mike, go get nice coffee, and then spend the next 10 to 14 hours writing and not writing and, you know, taking breaks and get it, basically taking walks 
um, so to not have that luxury of like doing it at my own pace last week was interesting. Um, and I guess I was also just proud that I was able to do it. <laughs> the sportscasts are here with uh, Blake Harris, the author of Console Wars. A few minutes left. Uh, we love this book. Uh, we're featuring it for the second time. It's a great read. It's out on paperback now. Of course, you can still get the hardcover version. There's an awesome uh, audiobooks version and, uh, of course, ebooks as well. Um, we talked about this real quickly last time, uh, the, the console, the present day console wars. I always, I always talk about how I loved when I finally got a, uh, the Nintendo modern day Game Boy. What's it called? Oh, the 3DS or the Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, I love this thing. I play it all the time. Then I got an iPhone and (laughs) I never played it anymore. I was always playing games on my iPhone and, of course, there's uh, PS4 and Xbox One. Uh, what are your thoughts on the modern-day uh, console wars, and uh, what do you prefer? What do you like? What, what, what? Uh, I know you don't have as much time, I'm sure, as you'd like to play uh, video games. None of us have as much time as we did when, <laughs> you know, the 8-bit Nintendo was out, and we'd play Mario Brothers for 12 hours on a Saturday. But uh, right. what are your thoughts about the modern-day console wars? Um, so, I, you know, sensibility-wise, Nintendo is still my perfect speed. I really like platformers and kind of, I guess, more of the family-friendly type games. Um, you know, looking back on it, I think that I just really failed to get into the first-person shooter around 95 to, like, 2000 or so, and then that kind of always Same made here. me feel, like, left out. And, mm-hmm. like, you know, so when everyone was playing Halo in college, I would, I would watch, and I really sucked at it. Um, so maybe that's part of the reason why Nintendo and, and the Wii U is what I have. feels like more of my speed. Um but one thing that's interesting to me is that, you know, the console wars that I wrote about with Sega Nintendo in the 16-bit era, but, but there's always a battle um, with each generation. But this one seems very hard to differentiate between Microsoft and Sony. And, you know, obviously, so I think Sony has sold 22 million units of the PS4, and they seem to be in the lead. But at least back with Sega Nintendo, I love that, Sega seemed to stand for one thing and Nintendo stood for the other and neither was right or wrong, but they were like, this, you know, in the same way the Republicans and Democrats, this is what they stand for, this is their platform, this is what it means to support this party. And, and I wish I had a clearer sense of what that means nowadays for Sony and Microsoft, though I understand why it can't, it's, it's harder to have those differentiators because it's, so, it's so costly to be in this arms race and it's not worth a third party being exclusive with one company over another in most cases. But I kind of miss that because, you know, I grew up such a major sports fan and, and I love rivalries like Yankees, Red Sox, whatever. I think that's exciting and, and it's sort of lacking that excitement. Hmm. What are your thoughts on Nintendo and apps? It seems like they're just never going to do it. But, man, I wish they would. And, man, would they kill it. I can't believe that they they don't find the value in having a Mario iPhone app or iPad app or whatever. I, well, they've, they've, I totally agree, and I got, like, slammed in one interview I gave last year when I said, like, if I were them, I would give away Mario 1 for free on the iPhone with the hopes that, like, 10 people would buy Mario 2 or something, because I think that so many people love it, but maybe forget that they do, and Nintendo reminding you for, for a product that they've clearly already made money on would be a good idea. Um, but it does seem like they're, they're, they have plans to move into the mobile space I don't know in what capacity that will be, and with Nintendo it'll often be on their own terms, but they seem to have 
evolved a little bit from that from that mindset of like, well, if you want to play a mobile Nintendo game, get a 3DS. Right. I you wonder, have and I have, but but it's not what we yeah. have in our hands most of the time. It would be great if we had something on the iPhone. I wonder if uh, this is very if this is a modern day Sega versus Nintendo thing because Sega has uh, certainly you know I can play Sonic. One Sonic Two, uh, new versions of Sonic on my iPhone or my iPad, and they look great and they play great and they're fun. Um, and it'd be great to see Mario join that world as well. And I, I mean, Mario Kart would play great on an iPhone. Mario Party would play great. I mean, so many of their titles would just work so great. I wonder if they've seen the success that Sony has or looked at the uh, Sega has, excuse me, and looked at the way those games have played, and maybe that that's softened their stance a little bit. Yeah, I think that's a part of it. They all, you know, they had a bad financial year last year as well, and there was a lot of questions. And a lot of it goes to their hardware. Um, I love the Wii U, but it hasn't sold very well, and it has a lot of marketing challenges. And, and there's certainly things I think that they messed up, so I'm not shocked. But if their goal is to sell console hardware, like what better way than to get you and I and our friends to play these games for 99 cents or five dollars or whatever and think like oh man i wish is there a modern version of mario oh there is i should maybe get the wii u or there's a new mario kart game yeah um and a new generation a new generation of 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 players as well i mean there's got to be a you know a 10 year old kid who's never played uh mario brothers on the 8-bit but would play the play it because everyone at his school is playing the on their iphone and next thing you know, he wants to get a Wii U because he's in love with the Mario games. Yeah, and, and also in addition to really better uh, exploiting or taking advantage of the mobile platform, I think that Nintendo has probably the best IPs outside of Disney slash Marvel nowadays, and it would really help that. Like, I think that them at least announcing to, that they were doing a Zelda series with Netflix was is a great move for them. I think they yeah. have so many great IPs that they should be doing more with, partly to appeal to that new generation, like you just said, and partly to appeal to people like you and I who are in our 30s and, and maybe forgot about how much we love Zelda and, and sort of maybe even more mature content, which doesn't have to be that. You can still be in the Nintendo image, but, you know, I'd love, in the way that Marvel has done such a good job with, you know, Daredevil was darker, and the Avengers movies are, you know, more popcorn-y. Like, Nintendo, I would like to see them sort of have a more diverse offering with their IP, because they have great characters that could really do well. Absolutely. Well, listen, Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the battle that defined a generation uh, is available in hardcover, um, paperback, Kindle, uh, iPhone, iBooks, all those places. Um, 70% five-star reviews on Amazon, um, and then 30% idiots uh, who maybe clicked wrong. Uh, just uh, one of our favorite books we featured. Um, what else? Uh, BlakeJHarris.com. Lay everything out that maybe I missed because I really want the listeners to connect with you and this, and we're going to have to have you back when the documentary. We want to be part of this. Every step of the way, so line it all out for us real quick. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, thanks so much for having me back. And, you know, I, this book has, most books come out and then they sell or don't sell and they kind of go away. But this is, this book has had legs and it's because of people like you and other people who have, like, really believed in it and helped spread the word and helped give me a platform to do that. So I really thank you for that. No problem. And uh, in terms of uh, pitching myself, 
I started that website, BlakeJHarris.com, just so I could put up the other articles that I wrote and some of my favorite photos or artifacts from the Council Wars process and excerpts and have it all in one place. So that's all there. Uh, my Twitter handle is BlakeJHarrisNYC, all one word. And uh, I love talking about the book um, and talking to people who hate the book or like the book. Um, and then otherwise, I'm just going to go back to the laboratory and, and work on the documentary um, and try to get that done and then get the feature film going and find a new book to get started writing. Uh, do we have a vague timetable at all on when we might see the, the movie? Uh, not yet. Uh, Joan and I are supposed to go to L.A. We're New York based. We're supposed to go to L.A. next week to meet with Seth and Evan and uh, watch the latest version of the cut and then hopefully talk about final steps to finishing up the post-production process. But uh, so hopefully in the next couple of weeks I'll have a much clearer idea for you. Blake, thank you so much for being on again. Thank you for giving us a chance to feature the book again in the book club. We are going to have a copy of the book to give away. Uh, I'll let you know more about that when I get the books. Uh, but uh, Blake put me in, in touch with the people at HarperCollins, and we're working that out. So we should have a copy or two to give away. And, um, yeah, thank you again. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I look forward to chatting in the documentary sometime. All right, I want to thank our guests for being on the podcast today. We always book a great show, huh, Don? You sure do. Another example of the brilliance of my booking Yeah. on the Sportscasters. You know, I always wondered, like, let's say we never got anywhere with this. I was just thinking probably the same thought you had. Like, maybe you should, like, just put out a resume. <laughs> Wouldn't someone want me to be the producer of their show, though? Haven't I not proven to produce this really well if yeah. nothing else i'm thinking like espn radio doesn't necessarily need you but maybe there's like a podcast out there that's like right on the cusp but just like we got to combine forces but every radio show needs producers yeah Even they do the best they, of them they do i don't know we don't need to talk about my <laughs> talents right now jeez Patterson's um, i'm embarrassed for booking the show that um, we don't know about i'm yet. blushing uh thank we're, you we're for listening to this, on this show one. Uh, www.sports-casters.com for our last show and all of our shows Joe Piznanski and Michael Fabiano the most recent uh, you can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters or at Don Like Sports at least two of them that we know of you can email us to sportscasters at gmail.com uh, we've been trying to use our Facebook page more but I stink at that uh, maybe if more people seem to look at it I will be better at it but uh I don't know. What do you got for us, Don? Uh, one last thing for me this week. Uh, Sammy Watkins is, again, doing awesome things in training camp, which is great. Uh, I still believe in the talent. I still believe he's probably the best guy to come out of that draft, and I know that's going to be a really tough argument to make based on anything he does on the field. But uh, I was listening to the beat reporter today talk about the quarterback competition and about how Matt Castle's kind of been a steady Eddie there and he doesn't have great practices, he doesn't have down practices, and that he can be a guy that competes, completes short to intermediate passes. And I just think, oh, we had that in Trent Edwards. We had that in uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick. I, I I, want a guy like Eli Manning that, I mean, Eli Manning, I know if you talk to like Damashek, it's all about the Super Bowls for him, and Eli Manning is a sure thing Hall of Famer, and I, I don't know that he is just because he's won two Super Bowls and his regular seasons haven't been that great, whatever. He's willing to just throw the ball 
to Odell Beckham and let him make plays. I want to see that from Sammy Watkins this year. If people are going to criticize what they gave up, and maybe rightfully so for him, make it look worthwhile. Make Give him 15 targets a game. Let him catch 10 balls a game. He says his hip feels great. Use him. Uh, I know you got Percy Harvin. I know you got Charles Clay. But the most important guy on that offense is Sammy Watkins. You gave up a ton for him. Use him. Uh, so if Matt Castle is going to be steady Eddie and Mr. Safe with the ball, I don't want him to win the competition. I'd rather have Tyrod Taylor win the competition. Maybe he's the guy I want to win the competition anyway because I know nothing about him. But I'd, I'd much rather have a guy that's going to go out there, wing the ball. I'd rather see Geno Smith. Uh, the way Geno Smith plays, he's willing to throw the ball everywhere and get picked off five times and come back and do it again the, the week afterward. And maybe Jets fans think I'm crazy, but I want someone that's willing to try to get Sammy Watkins the ball. The only thing that I, I think I said this to you before, you mentioned Manning, and it's a great example. But the reason he's willing to do that is because he's never looking over his shoulder. Yep. And I think what they need to do most is pick a starter, cut a guy, and make sure the other Absolutely. one knows he's the backup. Absolutely. Doug Marone. And roll with it. I don't want to hear that Doug Marone, or I don't want to hear the the version of Doug Marone told me not to run with the ball. Doug Marone, like, right. uh, use your strengths. Uh, I want confidence in the quarterback. And Rex has shown that he will go back to Geno Smith after five picks. So If they make a change four weeks into the season for any reason, it's a, it'll be a disaster. Any reason other than someone got hurt, it's a disaster. I, I mean, if they make a change four weeks into the season, I want them to lose the rest of the games this year. It just in hopes whoever the next quarterback is is there for them. Right. All right. Uh, one last thing. I said this to Don. Uh, the business of wrestling is just in one of those stretches where yeah. it just feels like the hits just keep coming. Uh, we had Dusty Rhodes, I think, was maybe the start of this when he passed away. He was one of those guys that when he passed away, it felt like everyone went out of their way to say the impact he made on wrestling. Uh-huh. And then it was Hulk Hogan essentially died. Not literally, sure, but in terms right. of yeah. his legacy, I legacy guess. Yeah. part of that died. Then it was John Cena's nose. I don't know if you've seen that on Raw. No, uh, I, mean, oh, I heard man. it, but yeah, oh, it's gross. Like, ended up under his right eye. Wow. And then this week, of course, it was uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, who, when I told the first lady this, said, uh, uh, "Roddy Roddy Piper died." <laughs> Roddy Roddy. And I said, "No, it's Rowdy Roddy Piper." <laughs> um, and just as much as Dusty Rhodes, if not more. This is an example of a guy who everyone is going out of their way to make a point of saying uh, his importance and his legacy. And I think it's two big things. One, uh, he was a guy who was able to draw natural heat uh, maybe better than anyone. And he was one of the first guys who was sort of a tweener where he could work heel but be cheered or work face and be booed. Yeah, okay. You know, and also he was one of the first sports entertainers, uh, one of the first guys that kind of transcended wrestling from being this thing that was mostly grappling to being this thing that was an entertainment enterprise with an entertainer. Uh, WrestleMania one was a success because of three people. Two of them are very obvious: Hulk Hogan and Vince McMahon. The third one is Roddy Piper, because. Without a legitimate hated opponent for Hulk Hogan, 
why would anyone have cared about WrestleMania 1? Right. People tuned into WrestleMania 1 mostly. Think about this, Don. The semi-main event at WrestleMania 1 was a women's title match between two women that you would never be able to name. Never. So it wasn't Cindy Lauper? (laughs) Cindy Lauper was in the corner of one of them. That's what we played off the top, him talking about Cindy Lauper. She was in Wendy Richter's corner. Who I would never – that name doesn't even sound familiar to me. And she wrestled Lilani Kai. Okay. Never. No. But that was the semi-main event in WrestleMania 1 because they established the rock and wrestling connection when – Cindy Lauper was presented or presenting gold records to Captain Lou Albano, and Roddy Piper came out and smashed the thing over Lou's head. Okay. And uh, Lauper's manager Dave Wolf, who was a huge guy on MTV, um, huge manager of stars in the '80s, got involved and created the rock and wrestling um, connection. And they did a special on MTV called "The War to Settle the Score," and it is one of the all-time highest-rated programs in the history of MTV still to this day. And it was like number one until like 2000 or something. Wow. Um, and uh, he did movies too. I mean, I'm not sure if you're going to say that. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, his first, wrestling. yeah, his first retirement uh, was after WrestleMania 3, and he went on and did movies. Um, you know, he's not in any like, no, he's not in San Andreas or anything to that level, like The but, Rock, but, but I'm here he to kick ass away. And chew bubblegum. Right. That line is, is kind of iconic. And he improved that line. Did I he? Mean, according to the director, that's you know, awesome. You know, he said to say it, and it worked. Um, nobody can talk about these things like the masked man, David Shoemaker, can. And his book, The Squared Circle, is basically about dead wrestlers. Yeah, it's structured around dead wrestlers, and it was one of our book club books of the year, and it's worth a read. And I linked to it. Richard Deitch has linked to it. Uh, his piece on Grantland right now about Piper. It's practically poetry. I mean, it's one of the best obituaries, which is essentially what it is, that I've ever read. I also wanted to mention, uh, my friend Eric and I went on Saturday to see Jake the Snake Roberts, and it was less than 24 hours after the news of Piper, and I couldn't help but sit there the whole time and think, wow, Jake, you might be next. It's amazing he hasn't. I mean, if anyone's seen Beyond the Mat, that, that Nobody would have put money on Jake to outlive Roddy. No, no. You know? Um, and it was a kind of a cool thing. Um, Jake's got some work to do yet, but Mick Foley and Jim Ross have sort of perfected these shows where they uh, rent out space at a comedy club or a small bar or whatever, and they tell stories, um, sometimes funny ones. They do Q&As, and they got a nice 90-minute show that, uh, is great for wrestling fans and entertaining enough for maybe wrestling fan spouses. Uh, and Jake is trying to do that now. And look at it was uh, we got there at one. It was held in front of an ice, a two hundred year old building in Clarence, um, which is outside of Buffalo, a nice rich suburb, right? Uh, Williamsville actually. Um, and they set up chairs in front of a porch. Uh, and inside the building, there's an ice cream, real old-fashioned ice cream shop and a comic book store. And from one to two, he greeted VIPs and signed autographs and took pictures. And then it said from 2 to 3.30, he did a show. He started at maybe 2.15, and he was done at like 3.15. He said his hips hurt. He couldn't take any more questions. Okay. Um, but it was okay. He told some a story about Andre the Giant taking a crapola on him. 
Um, he told a story about uh, ejaculating into the mouth of someone that eventually Rick Rude would be calling to the ring to give a kiss to. The same night. Same seconds later. Wow. <laughs> and uh, the ravishing one, who's also no longer with us, was not pleased. <laughs> um, he also talked about how there was like 40 different Damians. Oh, uh, really? Because Damien didn't really travel that much. Oh, okay. Not that they all They didn't all die, no. And he also told a story about how when, I think it was King Kong Bundy, splashed Damien. It was actually a sock with 50 pounds of ground beef in it. And how the local SPCA was, like, there to check the bag after to make sure they didn't slip Kill the snake in. Snake. Uh, like, you know, because um, I guess their word wasn't good enough that, no, we're not sending a snake out there to be squashed. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I hope it's not Jake. Uh, but it just feels like the business is in one of those runs where maybe it's going to be someone. Uh, maybe Piper was the end of it. I hope so. Uh, I've seen a lot of tweets like this, Don. Uh, another someone from my childhood passed away. And I guess maybe we're at that age now where people from our childhood are going to start passing away with a much higher regularity than maybe we're used to. Yeah, some of these wrestlers you... you Not just wrestlers. No, I know. But, I mean, you see the, the super jacked wrestlers and you blame it on steroids. He was never necessarily that, so... Yeah, I mean, he was 61 years old. I mean, you don't have to be a wrestler on steroids to die of a heart attack at 61, 61 right? right? And I think that, although Vince is no angel, certainly, I think his one argument that has been okay is you can't blame Vince every time a guy drops down on a heart attack. I mean... Yeah. It's one of the most common causes of death in our country among anyone. Uh, But it's a sad part of being a wrestling fan, and we're going to miss Piper.